now for your feature presentation. Just one, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Christmas and welcome to the Force 5 podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and it's the Christmas show. But of course, we're not talking Christmas movies. Today's guest is Jason Bailey, a man of many talents, but today we're focusing on his book, Fun City Cinema, New York, and the movies that made it. There's a link in the show notes, so check that out as we talk about a genre that's near and dear to my heart, Top 5. New York Exploitation Films. Before we get to Mr. Bailey, let's talk about some social media stuff from last week and today's featured review, the new film, Silent Night. Last week saw me and Bill from The Way talking survival game films, and we got a lot of great suggestions out there from social media over at Cinematics, the Facebook group. By the way, if you haven't checked out Cinematics, the podcast, go check that out, but the Facebook group is active, and uh, I always get a lot of good suggestions from those folks. Mark Crimmins there said The Naked Prey, which I have not seen yet, and I uh, have to check out. And Joseph Bridges threw a couple out there. He One of his choices was To Be or Not To Be. A Shakespearean theater group plays a game of deception with Nazis to find a spy who will deliver information that will kill many. That one sounds pretty cool. Over on Reddit, Kim's Jin said, Would you rather 13 sins and circle? I know more than you. That's a bold statement. Said Belko Experiment and The Platform. Belko Experiment is really good. The Platform I haven't seen yet but want to. Baron He said The Furies. That one is a blast. That one is very gory as well. Fishwoman said, not horror, but The Condemned 1 and 2 are great survival game movies. And again, they don't have to be horror, so I'll be sure to check those out. And Rising Sun 2 said, Turkey Shoot from 1982. And when I saw that suggestion, I was kicking myself because I love Turkey Shoot. I think I I, um, reviewed that on the show earlier in the year. All right, so a lot of great suggestions for survival game films. Again, if you want to get in on the action, I ask the questions on social media each week. At Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and I'm also on Reddit and Facebook, so hit me up there if you want to get your name on the show. Alright, let's get to this week's featured review for the new 2021 film, Silent Night. You look perfect. Fly! Did you bleed on the carrots? Will I die? Yep, probably. Christmas. You're still alive? Yes, I think so. Jesus, they're early. Ah! Tony and Simon robbed the petrol station. Oh, what fun. We make tremendous criminals. I felt so good. We're all getting old. We were getting old. It's just one potato each. Just one for everyone. I normally have a variation of the IMDb plot summary at the top of these reviews, but this time I'm going to get rid of that because I went in blind to this film and I think that it's worth being surprised if you're interested in a Christmas movie for 2021. All I knew about this movie going in was that it kind of went off the rails at some point and boy does it. I'll just describe the opening setup. So the opening of the film sees this family and some of their close friends descending on a beautiful country home for Christmas dinner. 
Nell is making potatoes. Nell is played by Kira Knightley. And her husband, Simon, is trying to wrangle the chickens in the yard. The twins that they have are playing video games. And their oldest son, Art, is doing what he can to help. Nell's sister, Sandra, arrives along with her boring husband, Tony, and their daughter, Kitty, who no one seems to like. And uh, shortly after that, their sister, Bella, arrives with her wife. And then finally, their family friend, James, and his girlfriend, Sophie, arrive as well. So big group gathering for Christmas. And as they converse, we can see that there are some cracks in each of these relationships. Secrets untold, grudges held. There's just something that feels off about the situation. And uh, finally, about 20 minutes in, they sit down for Christmas dinner. And through some off-the-cuff comments, we learn about what's really going on. And a lot of what happened in the first 20 minutes starts to make a lot more sense. The rest of the film is a darkly comedic one, like pitch black comedy with some moments of genuine terror and emotion all wrapped up in a big fat political socioeconomic commentary with a nice little satirical bow on top. There are some moments that really made me laugh out loud, most of them delivered by art played by Jojo Rabbit's Roman Griffin Davis, who is just fantastic as this inquisitive kid who seems more mature than most of the adults in the house, but honestly, there's not a weak link in the cast. Kira Knightley's fantastic, Matthew Goods, Sope Derisu, who I loved in Gangs of London, is great, Lucy Punch is here, and uh, Johnny Depp's daughter, Lily Rose Depp, all put forth brilliant layered performances. In a late film scene of frustration that Matthew Goods' Simon portrays will be relatable to all parents who are just trying to make their kids happy. Um, I don't want to say much more than this. I guess I'll just say that it's really tough to end a movie like this, and although I don't love the final shot, it's also obvious that we don't know what happens after that final shot. In interviews with uh, writer-director Camille Griffin, she said that what's on screen wasn't her original ending, and that vibes, I can see that. Sometimes directors need to compromise their vision a bit to get their stuff on screen, and I hope that on the eventual Blu-ray release, we'll see those scenes and the intended ending. Overall, I don't think that ruins the film, though. There are a lot of ways to read the themes of the film, and I'm not going to get into that in this review, because, again, if I discuss the politics and the allegories within, it will ruin the crux of the film for those going in blind. And I really hope that uh, if you're deciding to see Silent Night, you go in with as little information as possible. I really, really enjoyed this movie. It's a Christmas movie unlike anything I've seen before. It made me laugh. It made me tear up, and it gave me legitimate anxiety. Not because of what I was seeing on screen, per se, although one scene involving a car really did make me want to look away, but because it begs the question, much like in films like Gone Baby Gone, what would you do? What would you do as a parent? What would you do as a friend? What would you do? And uh, after I saw the film, I went and talked to my wife about it because she sure as hell wasn't going to watch this film with me. And there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer here. So go check out Silent Night from 2021. I guarantee you will walk out with some emotions, whether that be frustration or just having a good conversation with your significant other. And speaking of significant others, some people on your Christmas list are probably going to be really hard to shop for, but there's one thing that everyone could use a little more of in their stocking this year, and that is magic. And that's where today's sponsor comes in. Is that special someone on your list looking to join Hogwarts or the Allegiance of Magicians? Maybe they just want to be the next Harry Potter or Tony Wonder. Perhaps they just want to start a magic career to get out of gym class. Whatever the reason, if somebody on your list is looking to turn tricks, I, I, I mean illusions, in front of your eyes, head to Ollivander's Wand Shop. 
all of Ollivander's wands are made from wood and have a magical substance at their core. Wands made by Ollivander have cores of phoenix feather, unicorn hair, dragon heart string, and more, and are made of varying woods, lengths, and flexibilities for anyone in your life who's cast a spell on you. Head to Ollivander's wand shop and tell them the Force 5 sent you for a free troll whisker with the purchase of any new wand. Ollivander's wand shop. It's not the size of the wand that matters. It's how you use it. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Bailey. He's a film writer, podcaster, and author of the new book, Fun City Cinema, New York, and the movies that made it. Jason, how's it going tonight? Jason, uh, it's beautiful, and thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to have you. We're going to get to the book here in just a second because it's perfectly going to tee up our list segment. But I got to say, you've had a hell of a run here promoting the book. Um, I know like when we first started talking, I told you that I'd heard your segment on one of my favorite film podcasts, which is Pure Cinema. Yep. And th- that was awesome, by the way. If, you, if you're looking for more Jason Bailey after this, go and listen to that. It came out on November 15th. But uh, after that, God, I saw you were on WTF with Mark Marin. Yeah. Like one of the <laughs> biggest podcasts out there. Sandwiched between episodes featuring Bill Pullman and Ridley fucking Scott. Yeah. How does that feel? <laughs> I mean, it's weird to look at at the upcoming lineup and see your name after Ridley Scott's. Yes, that was a little, that was bizarre. And what was wild was that just the way that they scheduled out, I ended up recording both the WTF and Pure, Cin- uh, Pure Cinema podcast on the same day. So it was like in the, oh, wow. the same day I got to do like my two favorite podcasts. It was insane. And, 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 um, and great, you know, it was it just um, a, a real surprise uh, to, to to be invited on, uh, frankly, either of those shows. Um, and uh, and I just, you know, I, I hope people liked it. and I hope they buy the book. That's what it's all about. <laughs> uh, well, they were both awesome guest appearances. Thank you. I was a little nervous, I think you could say, on <laughs> on both of them, but especially on Marin, because that one was in front of an audience. Um, yeah. <clears throat> which was wild it was it, it all it was just a spiraling thing where like first he was like okay well mark's gonna be in town for the new york comedy festival so let's do it then great so i mean i to be clear i would have flown out to to <laughs> like just for a sunday to like go to the fucking garage and do a, a marin interview but oh, sure yeah. if, if he's coming here no problem and then it was like okay well we don't want to just do it you know you can just sit in his hotel room and do it which is kind of what they would usually do but he said if there's somewhere that we could do it that's a little more thematically appropriate yada 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 and i had just been to the paris theater for a press screening like earlier that week you know which is the only single screen theater remaining in manhattan netflix just bought it like right before covid and they're trying to promote it again you know so i was like well i bet the paris would let us do it there let's just do it there thinking like he and i would like sit in a couple of seats and chat like siskel and ebert (laughs) or something and so uh brendan the producer you know takes it to mark and mark's like well if we're going to do it in a theater we need to have an audience and i'm like okay (laughs) um Maybe that's your natural inclination, <laughs> stand-up comic extraordinaire, but uh, I chose a line of work where I sit in a room with giant groups of people and don't speak to them, and then go <laughs> home and do all of my work in absolute solitude. So the idea of trying to be like, first of all, eloquent and thoughtful and maybe reasonably entertaining just for Mark Marin is scary enough. But it's like, now I got to right. entertain 200 people at the same time. 
So yes, it was very nerve wracking. And I'm, I'm frankly just happy it came out reasonably listenable, frankly. Yeah, I thought they were both great interviews. So everybody after this show should listen to those and go buy the book, which again, we're going to talk about here in just a second. Obviously, we're going to be talking New York cinema, but to get a, a general feel for your taste, what are some of mm. your favorite non-New York movies? Oh, God. Um, this is all I've been thinking about are, are New York <laughs> movies for for the longest. Um, non-New York favorite. Oh, God. Well, let's see. Godfather's a New York movie, technically. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Taxi Driver, definitely do, do the right. Uh, Disco Godfather. That's a big one. Um, and... Um, Let's see. What else? What else? What else? God, this is this. I've never had to think of it in these terms, Jason. <laughs> this is actually incredibly difficult. Um, uh, 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 not Rear Window. That's New York. Um, yeah, uh, they're mostly New York. <laughs> I didn't. I, I've never I've never been asked that question in that form. I've never had to dodge the New York stuff. I apologize for hemming and hawing. <laughs> uh, duck soup. There you go. Duck oh, okay. soup. That's that's Fredonia. That's about as far away from New York as you can get. There we go. Where did Disco Godfather take place? Uh, I think in Los Angeles, if memory serves. All right. Well, there we go. Um, have you seen Licorice Pizza yet? You could add that. Oh, to your, hell yes. To your oh, hell yes. Go. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite movie of 2021. So. OK, awesome. Now let's talk fun city cinema, New York and the movies that made it. Tell us a little bit about the book here. The book is basically it's a 100 year dual history of of New York City itself and of New York City movies and the various ways in which they interact and intersect and feed off of each other. And, you know, the, the general idea sort of being that the great New York movies are all at least partially great because they're speaking to what's happening in the city at that moment and sort of serving as a snapshot for what is happening not just cinematically, but politically, socially, economically. Um, so it's broken down into 10 chapters. Uh, each chapter covers a decade and focuses on both, you know, what was happening historically in New York in the period and also sort of the story of one kind of quintessential New York movie from that decade and how it comments on what the city was at that time. And then at the end of each chapter, there are a series of sort of standalone essays uh, where, you know, delve into some of the other sort of key movies of that period. Yeah, you've got some interviews with like some crazy, amazing filmmakers in there that you would associate with New York, like yes. Scorsese, like Noah yes. Baumbach, just all kinds of cool stuff in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, shit, if you listen to this podcast and you're not more interested in New York movies than when you started, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you. And <laughs> you need to go buy this book. It is... Uh, like there's a digital version of it, but you don't mm -hmm. want the digital version of it. You want the big hardcover version. You could bludgeon somebody with this yes. thing. It is a yes. massive coffee table book, <laughs> full pictures, full color. If you don't want it, somebody on your Christmas list will. But I tell you, this this book is amazing. You're going oh, to you. want it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I will. I will only say this. I do like that the Kindle edition exists solely for New Yorkers who read on the subway. Like I'm a big subway reader. The book is entirely too cumbersome to take on the train with you. So the Kindle version is good to have for, for when you're on the train. Maybe just smart to buy them both just so you have it for for whatever the circumstance may be. Yeah, buy them both. You get the Kindle version for the subway and, and the go. other one for the coffee table. There you go. And I like the idea that it's like these almost like mini documentaries of New York in the background of the movies that we watch. 
Yeah. And I tell you, like, I've been to New York City way more times than my wife has because my family's from back east. I got an uncle that still lives in in downtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And uh, like her expectation of going when, we, when I first took her to New York City was so much different than like when my friends would come with me to New York City because they had seen stuff like Taxi Driver and my wife had seen stuff like Serendipity. Right. And it's like <laughs> such a different look and feel in those movies. And it is kind of like you're seeing a snapshot of New York in that time. And that's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately kind of where I landed by the end of the thing was that like, you know, these, these movies are, you know, at at least entertainment at best works of art. But if you, if you really think about them in from this angle and from this perspective, they're almost like, uh, like archeology. span They're almost like little, a little fossil, of, you know, what New York was in the summer of 75 or the winter of 1943 or whenever these movies were made. You know, this idea that the the really great New York movie makers um, are always informed, not just by the story they're telling, but what's happening outside the frame and are always letting that New York energy in uh, and letting it influence sort of the feel and the style and the tone of their movies. And there were so many to, to choose from. So we we boiled this down to New York exploitation films and even, even narrowing the field down. There were far too many good ones. Like I feel like my honorable mention list is huge on this one. Ultimately I went with some deeper cuts, but this also feels like a list that I am going to be way outclassed in, which is kind of exciting for me because normally with topics, I feel like I'm the one coming in with more film knowledge, but clearly in this case, I am not the expert. You uh, are. You, you might be surprised because actually this was one where I, you know, I didn't want to just get into sort of like the big ones, the obvious ones, any of that sort of thing. These were some of the ones that, that were sort of the fun ones for me to watch um, in, in sort of delving into exploitation, but I'm not as deeply versed in exploitation movies as say, like you were the pure cinema guy. So hopefully we'll find the right kind of mixture of like, of deep cuts. I might know just cause they're New York and stuff. You might know cause it's exploitation and, and maybe come up with it with a good mixture. Or I don't know. Maybe we'll end up with, with very similar lists. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah. I am excited with that being said, Jason Bailey, are you ready to get to this list? I am. You know what's going to happen? five New York exploitation films. Before we kick things off here, is your list in any kind of order? Like, did you go from favorite to like, is number one your favorite or are you just kind number of one? Yeah, no, number one is my favorite. I did kind of go from, from, but all, I mean, I love all five of them, but I did kind of try to try to try to end on what is for me, the quintessential New York exploitation movie. I kind of went with my list as I, originally I started out like, okay, I got five movies. I'm going to try and do one from each of the five boroughs. Oh, but I couldn't I couldn't find a good one from Queens. So if, yeah, if you have any yeah, recommendations for some, yeah, for some Queens one, I got the other four in there. And, and as such, I got two from Manhattan. But I guess I'll start things off here with my number five. OK, we'll get rolling um, this. Oh, shit. This is going to be like the grittiest, grimiest, dirtiest movie <laughs> on my list. I figure we'll start at peak uh, pre Giuliani New York City. Here. <laughs> yeah. And really get nasty with Staten Island's Combat Shock from 1986. Oh, good one. Good one. That very, that almost made my list. That was very close to my top five. The Fighting. The Killing. The Maiming. 
the torture cages. They were the easy part of combat shock. Meet Frankie Dunlop, decorated war hero, ex-prisoner of war. But when he returned home, nothing had prepared him for the nightmare that would follow. Combat shock. Oh, this movie is disgusting on every oh, level. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is directed by Buddy, um, I'm going to butcher this last name, Buddy Giovinazzo. And it stars his brother, Rick Giovinazzo, as uh, this dude named Frankie Dunlin. And he's an unemployed Vietnam veteran. He's living in total poverty with his uh, wife and his baby, who I will get to in a second. The baby <laughs> is something else. This is... Peak Staten Island, late 80s, walking outside, just there's junkies. Um, he's unable to get a job, and he's surrounded by this depravity of urban life, and he starts to lose his grip on sanity. This thing was filmed in Staten Island with no permits, like a lot of these films I'm sure on our list are, uh, in Port Richmond, which is still, as I read, pretty violent and uh, pretty like crime-ridden. And uh, we get some looks at this old 80s rundown neighborhood, and I think a lot of this took place in the same neighborhood. Again, like budget constraints. This is bottom of the barrel budget yeah. stuff here. Yeah. Even the flashback sequences in this, they're supposed to take place in Vietnam, but they were filmed in the Staten Island swamps. Right. Which gives you an idea. Like as you watch it, you don't normally think New York City and think swamps, but they are in yeah. Staten Island. Uh, this is Rick Giovinazzo's only acting credit. And I think he did pretty well as this like sweaty, haunted vet. Who mm -hmm. always, when he's on screen, he always looks like he's ready to lose it. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, he still works in film as a music composer and orchestrator. And he's worked on some huge films. Like he worked on, he's worked on some of the Transformers movies, oh, Solo, wow. Star Wars Story, Ghostbusters, uh, the newer Ghostbusters, Step Brothers, like all these crazy. Wow. Yeah, I was so surprised. I was thinking about this list and it's like, oh my God, I got to talk about Combat Shock, but I. Uh, I'm dreading rewatching any of it because <laughs> of the mutant baby. So yeah, yeah. he's got this kid and the kid. Uh, so, you know, there's this thing in Vietnam called Agent Orange and he comes back with what he thinks is Agent Orange in his system. And he has a baby with his wife and the baby is deformed from the Agent Orange. But it's not like a typical deformed baby. This is you could tell it's like a puppet that yeah. people are using their hands to control, and it looks ghastly. It is yeah. like one of the most horrifying things <laughs> I think I've ever seen on screen. And out of all five on my list, this one's the one that I'm I'm going to tell my listeners, like, you, you got to go into this with caution because <laughs> <laughs> the ending, Jesus Christ, the ending is about as bleak yeah. as movies get. <laughs> if you're looking for a good time, this is not it. But in terms of like exploitation or even non-sploitation as this might fall into, this is like mm -hmm. as gritty and low budget as you're going to find. And I think it's an interesting relic of Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. The the other thing that I think is sort of interesting about that one, um, when you talk about the Vietnam stuff being shot, like in the, the swamps, um, <laughs> you know, another sort of classic New York exploitation movie, which is not on my list because it's frankly not a terribly good movie, but um I remember reading about uh, the exterminator shooting its oh, yeah. Vietnam 
it's Vietnam flashbacks, like in upstate New York. You know what I mean? Like these, these movies <laughs> where they want to have the Vietnam element, um, but they can't afford to like, you know, go outside of the tri-state area to shoot their <laughs> Vietnam flashbacks, which I think is great. Yeah. This one was recommended to me actually just on a Twitter thread early in the, in the book research process where I was just like, tell me your, your New York obscurities that I may not know that I should put on my viewing list. And this one got multiple oh. recommendations because um, those are the kind of weirdos and freaks that follow me on Twitter. <laughs> but the thing that I think is really interesting, and, and this sort of will actually take us into to my number five pretty smoothly, is that I think it's a, it would make an interesting double feature with Taxi Driver. Um, because oh, yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways, it's just kind of like the grindhouse taxi driver. Not that taxi driver is like a prestige pick by any means, but that it has a lot of that, that same just sort of like doom and dread and the, the, the instability and PTSD of the Vietnam vet. Like some of those same sort of themes and ideas are, are on, are in this film, but in a much sort of gnarlier level, which I think is interesting. Yeah, he actually looks like Travis Bickle, too. Yeah. Like if you tossed a mohawk on him, he would look just like Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, so Combat Shock from 86. That's my number five. We'll roll right into yours. My number five, uh, it's probably the most obscure one on my list. I, 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 I occasion, I, I've not met a lot of people who have seen this one because it is kind of hard to find. Uh, from 1965, uh, Who Killed Teddy Bear? Nora, don't you see? I can tell you anything you want to know about perverts and degenerates. To me, you're an animal. You're white, a child at home. You're a dirty, disgusting animal! If I'm a man, and I, I will make you feel like a real woman. I know you so well. I know everything to you so well. I know every area. You get these calls often? Do you mean... Do I imagine them hear voices, see burglars under my bed, maybe? Do you get these calls off? Which is directed by Joseph Cates, uh, father of uh, everyone's favorite babe, Phoebe Cates, um, brother of Gilbert Cates, who was the guy who like directed the Oscar telecast for decades on end. Um, and it's a really strange, uh, sort of unnerving black and white film, like I say, from 1965, that's set primarily in sort of the Times Square, Midtown theater district type area. Um, stars Sal Minio as, as a stalker, basically, as a sexual predator. Um, Juliet Prouse as his prey, this woman who kind of, uh, who is a hostess in sort of a dance club. Um, and Elaine Stritch, a young Elaine Stritch, if you can imagine such a thing, because it feels like Elaine Stritch was born like 45. Um, <laughs> as kind of the brassy broad who won, who runs the joint. Um, it is just a really seamy little item, uh, that I saw totally on a lark. It was, um, Alamo draft house's weird Wednesday pick one week. Nice. Um, it was right when I was like working on the proposal for the book. So I stumbled into it, like not even knowing that it was a New York movie. Um, and was really struck by just how, you know, the, the way that that Midnight Cowboy captures that district and its sort of scuzziness uh, in the late 60s. Like this feels very much of a piece with that, because um, like I say, it is very much a Times Square movie. 
Um, there's, you know, it's, it's sort of set in that same kind, you know, the, 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 the sort of like, a, there, there are adult bookstores in it all over the place. You know, you see him like perusing, <laughs> you know, the dirty magazine rack and the cameras like lingering on every cover, of course, um, sure. in, in the adult bookstore in Times Square, you know, he's ogling like the lobby cards in front of the grindhouse before he goes in to see uh, a nudist film, uh, because, you know, it was the mid sixties. But it's it's just it's it's there's just something sort of unseemly about it. You know, it's it's so many of sort of on the downward uh, decline part of his career, um, but he's fully invested. It's a really haunting performance. Um, he's genuinely sort of disturbing in it. Um, and the thing the, the connection again to, to sort of combat shock was how much it seemed to me as I was watching it to be kind of a precursor to Taxi Driver. Um, it's got that sort of, you know, the, 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 the anti-hero who's, who's unhealthily sort of obsessed with porn and is, and is letting that infect his, his, his mindset in a way. Um, it's got a similar kind of like doomy snare drum score. Um, a lot of scenes of him like alone in his apartment. And then I got to the end credits and the assistant cameraman is Michael Chapman, uh, who is director hmm. of photography on Taxi Driver, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so I don't know if, if Scorsese saw this at some point and it sort of, uh, you know, influences his aesthetic on, on taxi driver or whatever, but it is, it's, it's a hard movie to track down. I've, I've never, I, I don't know that it ever saw like sort of a proper theatrical release, but it's really, uh, strange and you don't, you absolutely do not know where it's going. It's got that great, you know, a lot of the kind of mid sixties exploitation movies have a real kind of the roughies almost have a yeah. sense of like, I don't, this could go to a really bad, dark place. You don't feel safe with it the way you do <laughs> with, with mainstream cinema of that era. Um, and it has stuck with me. Like I said, it's one of the first ones I saw when I was researching the book. And it was one of the first ones I thought of when I sat down to make this list. That's Who Killed Teddy Bear from 1965. This is one that I've heard of, but I've never seen. Uh, I know that it's never had like a Blu-ray release. Like right. you said, it might be a little bit hard to find, but it looks like it's streaming on the service Tubi right now. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. Well, good for Tubi then. Um, yeah, they've been picking up a lot of weird stuff lately. Yeah. Okay. Well, go watch that with some ill-placed commercials and uh, <laughs> see what you think. Yeah, that's the one shit thing about Tubi, just commercials like right in the middle of dialogue. Mm-hmm. All right. Who killed Teddy Bear? That's a that's a good pick. Uh, see, I told you you were going to outclass me on these. Eh. <laughs> the rest uh, of these, I'm sure <laughs> the rest of these, I'm sure you've seen. All right. On to my number four here. We're going to move a little bit over to the Bronx for this one. Uh, this is 1982's 1990 The Bronx Warriors. <laughs> All right. All <laughs> right. Now. By Enzo G. Castellari. In the year 1990, the New York City authorities declared the wasteland known as the South Bronx to be a high-risk area. There would be no further attempt to restore law and order to that notorious borough. The South Bronx had long since been controlled by gangs with such names as the Riders, Scavengers, Iron Men, Tigers, and Sharks. To venture without permission into the territory of a rival power was to risk war. War with no holds barred. War to the death. Now, Italy has always made these like cheap ripoffs from American films. And yep. this is Italy's basically remake of Escape from New York with mixing in the Warriors. Yep. Um, so it's about this girl named Anne. She's the heir to this big, giant 
arms manufacturer called the Manhattan Corporation. And she feels guilty about it. She doesn't want that life. And she runs away into this lawless wasteland, the Bronx. Uh, in This <laughs> obviously takes place in the future at the time, which was 1990. And it says the Bronx is officially declared no man's land. The authorities <laughs> gave up all attempts to restore law and order. From then on, the area is ruled by the riders. And uh, <laughs> the riders is... Like it, it has that warriors feel where each gang kind of has their thing, and the riders, yep. they're like these old bikers. And a lot of the cast, I think, was made up of Hell's Angels. There's another gang called the Tigers, which <laughs> they all have like tiger face paint. And there's a roller skating gang called the Zombies. Just all kinds of like really fun stuff that I'm into. But yep. the riders, they are led by this dude named Trash. Yes, his name is Trash. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he like finds this girl and takes her under his wing, like under his protection. But the Manhattan Corporation wants her back, so they send in this mercenary named Hammer, and he's going to, like, come in and fucking kill everybody to get Anne back. Hammer versus Trash. Like, <laughs> yes, Hammer versus Trash. That would have been a great title, too. I know they had to connect it to the movie they were ripping off, but I'm more likely to see a movie <laughs> called a Hammer versus Trash. I know. The second one in this in this series actually, like, directly rips it off, just calling it Escape from the Bronx. Yes, that's right. And... This one also stars the Hammer, who is Fred the Hammer Williamson in That's a different right. role as a dude named Ogre. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh man, does this belong on the list? Because it's a post-apocalyptic look at the Bronx. But I tell you what, I started rewatching it. There's a Blue Underground um, Blu-ray and yep. I started watching the Blu-ray and the outdoor scenes were all shot in New York City. Yep. Uh, Italy at the time had like this rule that half the half the financed film had to be shot in Italy. So the indoor scenes were shot in Italy, but the outdoor scenes were in New York City. And the first shot in the movie is just fantastic. It is, it takes place at a harbor right across from the World Trade Center. Yep. And there's a drummer, like just <laughs> a, a random drummer. He's sitting on like, which you got to figure where like chairs ripped out of uh, Shea Stadium. Yeah. And he's like, just <laughs> drumming. He's just drumming it up, and then you see this gang come in, the riders come in, and then you see the Tigers gang come in, and they all, they're all dressed up like zoot suits, and they got like the old style cars, and they have uh, this meeting, and it is yeah. the most, like you can just see the city in the background. It looks so cool. Um, now, there are some obvious criticisms here. The dude who plays Trash was played by this, this guy named Mark Gregory, and... I can never take him seriously. Yeah. He like he did this film, he did the sequel, and then he did this trio of thunder movies, which I've never seen in Italy. And they just disappeared. Yeah. But he walks with no swagger. He has no <laughs> charisma, but it also, that fact makes Fred Williams's character just stand out totally. so much more. He is amazing in this. He, he has this girlfriend named witch and he's like almost this pimp character. He's so colorful and he's just in there to kick ass. Yeah. My favorite piece of dialogue from 1990, The Bronx Warriors. I wrote it down. Dude says, your mother never gave birth to you, did she? Just popped <laughs> you into the sewer and split, letting you blossom into the asshole you are today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about this movie. It's just like, it's a really cool relic when they're outside of that old school New York feel. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. All right. Uh, Number four for you. Number four. I will say this. I, you know, as, as one of the, the steps that I had to take to keep this list sort of even manageable, 
uh, in my head was obviously I made the rule that n- only one film from from any given director. Um, nice. This is the first of three movies on in the remaining four that are from directors who I easily could have filled the entire top five list with, like sort of quintessential New York sleaze masters. Um, movie number four uh, from 1976, Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Christmas 1951, a child is born. A virgin birth. Who are Moses and Jesus, really? Tomorrow, civilization will tremble under his almighty power. He must be obeyed. Why did you attack all those people? God told me to. God told me to. God told me to. Rated R. I love Larry Cohen. I think he's he was sort of the madman uh sleaze Scorsese of 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 New York City. Um <laughs> he made so many fun you know and and the, the 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 energy of his filmmaking is what for me kind of sets it apart. Like because he was so often shooting guerrilla style, you know, barely with permits, throwing it together on the street. There are so many times when you're watching his movies where he's doing crowd scenes where clearly like that is not a paid crowd. Those are, (laughs) those are not extras. They just plucked their actors into the middle of an intersection and just sort of decided to see what would happen. Um, But I think God told me to really is his best film. Um, Certainly his strangest, his most idiosyncratic um, and the one where he's and sort of his most ambitious, I think um, it's the, the, the general idea being that there's a crime wave that's happening in New York. Uh, Tony LoBianco is this this, you know, sort of loose cannon New York cop, this uh, Italian, you know, Catholic dude. Um, and he's the, the movie starts with this really upsetting sequence where there's, you know, with panic in the streets. There's this random sniper uh, who's up on like one of the water towers that are, you know, sort of on apartment buildings throughout the city, uh, just just shooting people, just like just with a rifle, just sniping people, he, you know, blows away 14 people in the street. And uh, this cop, you know, Tony LoBianco uh, goes, you know, climb, scales the water tower and goes up to, you know, gets up there and is trying to talk the guy down or whatever. And he asks why he did it. And the guy, it's very chilling. The guy says it was a nice day. And uh, there's this, this, it's clearly just a sheer random act of, of urban terror. And when he asks him why he did it, he says, promise you won't tell anybody else. God told me to. And then he leaps off the tower. Yeah. And that's a way to start a movie. That's how you start <laughs> a motion picture right there. Um, and so basically the story becomes like, you know, Tony Lobianco is, is tracking all of these murders where this sort of this um, people are sort of passing this. Uh, curse almost onto each other where just random people will commit a crime, a murder usually. And when asked why they say God told me to, and then they kill themselves. Uh, And it becomes this sort of weird supernatural kind of thing. Um, There's, there's, there's (laughs) almost a Rosemary's baby element to it, except the baby is like this barefoot hippie from Washington Heights with shoulder length hair. Um, and, uh, but, and the, the music is like insanely over the top and sort of dripping with atmosphere, but in the middle of all of this, 
sort of chaos he's also telling like this sort of fascinating personal relationship stories because like tony labianco has this like broken marriage and this other relationship he's trying to juggle and there's sort of real issues and insecurities and relationship stuff being dealt with in this in the middle of this absolutely bonkers genre supernatural film you know yeah um and then also there's an uh, this other aspect of it that that again in sort of the way I thought about movies when I was writing the book is always like, okay, well, let's connect this to what's happening in, in the city at the time. You know, it's, it really is a movie about just sort of mass urban hysteria, which, you know, is it's being shot in 75, 76, which is the real low point for New York city. It's the same time, you know, the taxi drivers being shot. It's um, the, you know, the, the crime is, is, uh, you know, uh, over the top. Uh, the city's teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Uh, there's trash everywhere, you know, Ugh, and yeah. um, and in the middle of all of this, you know, the the year after this movie comes out is when the Son of Sam murders start happening. You know, the Summer of oh, Sam, yeah, yeah. the Summer of Sam was 1977, and this came out in 1976. And in a weird way, this almost feels prescient to that. Like ultimately, when they caught you know, David Berkowitz, his, his story was the devil told me to. Um, and here's a movie where God told me to. So it's full of, 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 of great, you know, sort of chilling set pieces, uh, crazy stuff, you know, again, where he's just sort of sh- clearly shooting guerrilla style. There's an entire sequence with Andy Kaufman in the middle of like a, <laughs> a St. Patrick's day parade, like in the middle of a bunch of cops that he like clearly had not like had no permission to shoot. He clearly just like put Andy Kaufman in the middle of the St. Patrick's <laughs> day parade and just got in there with a couple of handheld cameras and got his movie done, which is like Larry Cohen never said die. He never said there was something he could not do no matter how low his budget. Um, so it's as entertaining and as was a cop in that scene too, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's in a police <laughs> uniform. Yeah. And he has one line, which is God told me to, um, <laughs> anyway, it's as, it's as sort of balls out strange and entertaining as any Larry Cohen movie, but it also really kind of feels like one that where he took it, you know, he took uh, the story he was telling seriously and put in some, some real sort of interesting personal feeling stuff into this really wild film. I had a Larry Cohen movie that almost made my list in Black Caesar, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen God Told Me To in a very long time, but I can tell you that third act is amazing, and, and the movie almost feels like a precursor to 1986's The Hidden, but oh, you swap sure. out. Yeah. Yeah, you just you swap out the uh, hippie alien dude for <laughs> uh, a different type of alien, but yeah, it, it really does feel like that. Yeah, definitely. Great pick. Uh, where do I go from this one? Well, I, you know <laughs> what? I guess there's a connection. The original plan for this was to cast my boy Robert Forster of course. in that role, and he was unavailable. So we're going to go to my Robert Forster pick here because, Excellent. gosh, you got to have one on the list. And this one is going up to Brooklyn with 1982's Vigilante. You're not safe anymore. With every hour, 163 people become victims of assault. You live at the mercy of the animals who inhabit every city at a time when 65 people are murdered each day and 12 women are raped every minute. It's time to take a stand. Their numbers are growing and you must wage a war to stop them. Vigilante. Rated R. I'm guessing that when you're talking about directors, you could have all of their films on this list that William Lustig 
might be one of those directors. There will be a there will be a Lustig film later in my list. Yes, yes, definitely. Yep, I figured at least one would make it on there, and he's another one where I could God, I could pick all Lustig movies mm-hmm. for this. But mm-hmm. uh, this is like I said, it stars Robert Forster, my second Fred Williamson movie on. That's here. right. But, uh, Forster plays Eddie. He's a factory worker, and he's like just a good husband, a good dad. But it shows this side of New York City where everybody other than them is like a rapist, a thief or a murderer. (laughs) And his buddies at the factory, they've banded together and they're like, you know, the justice system is failing us and we're going to clean up the streets with our own brand of justice. So when they clock out from the factory, they clock in to being like four punishers. Yeah. Eddie's not really interested at first, but then when some shit goes down at his house, he decides to join his friend's neighborhood watch. Yeah. And when I say some stuff goes down at his house, uh, it (laughs) is a, holy shit, it's a harrowing, inciting incident that like, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff in movies, but what they do to his family is like, it's, (laughs) it's upsetting. Yeah. Um, and stuff that you don't expect to see even now, uh, or even back then, rather. But God, Brooklyn in this movie is just such a relic. There is a great scene that kind of encap- encapsulates it all. Williamson follows this guy into what looks like an abandoned public pool. And it is like completely barren. Everything is covered in graffiti. And uh, it just looks fantastic. The blue underground disc I have is in 4K and it looks yeah. so crisp that you could almost smell the piss soaked streets here. Yeah. In Brooklyn. God. Um, I mean, thematically, the movie, if you've never seen Vigilante, it's essentially it's Death Wish. Yeah. But whereas Death Wish kind of ends with the ray of light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, <laughs> the, the sequels negate that. But right. Vigilante ends completely dark. Uh, there's like a great courtroom scene. There's a car chase in here. Gosh. And like we said, no permits. I guarantee they they didn't have permits for this bad boy. You got a, um, like a Malibu versus a Datsun and they are just driving through city streets. Um, it it features those bright blue New York city police cars that I just love Mm -hmm. from when I was a kid. And, what else can I say? Robert Forster is awesome like he always was. Of course. It's tough that he had to like lead this Bill Lustig picture because like any hero in a Lustig film gets put through the fucking ringer. Yeah. And he is <laughs> no different here. But man, there's a great line at the end where the guy's like, doesn't matter to me. And Forster's like, it matters to me. And then he yeah. takes justice into his own hands. God, it's so good. Yeah. So yeah, that's Vigilante, my number three, 1982. I love the fact that in the, like the deck is so stacked in that movie to get Robert Forrester <laughs> on the team. God, that the like, it's not alone. just that that horrible stuff. Yes. It's not just that the horrible stuff happens to his family, but then when the judge like lets them all off the hook and he starts yelling at the judge, <laughs> he goes to jail. He goes to jail for like contempt of court, but he yeah, goes to jail. When, yeah. 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 I'm just like, really? Okay. All right. It's a, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta rile this guy up. That's fine. Okay. Here we go. Oh yeah. So good. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one. Um, I will tell you that uh, Mr. Lustig reached out to me recently uh, because he had he uh, picked up a copy of the book and he was looking forward to reading it. And in the process of that uh, Twitter DM conversation, he he mentioned that he was from the Bronx and mentioned the the, the public school that he went to here in the Bronx. Oh. Da- it's down the block from my house. It's where my kids go to school. I, oh, no I shit. freaked out. My kids are going to Bill Lustig school. I was like, all right. <laughs> That's kind of badass. My number three from 1980, 
uh, directed by Robert Butler and an uncredited Sidney J. Fury, Night of the Juggler, which is one of these movies that I never miss an opportunity to talk about or recommend to people. Daddy's little girl is missing. How are you going to find her? Somebody took her. Somebody's going to pay. You want to see your kid alive again? Daddy will make sure of that. Daddy! You're giving me a million bucks, you'll never see your kid again. James Brolin, a broadcast premiere, Night of the Juggler. Sunday night at 6, only on Channel 11. It's a it's a terrific sort of white knuckle action picture. Um, st- the 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 split credits is interesting because it was it was started by Sidney J. Fury and then they had to shut down production because of an injury and he left the movie and then Robert Butler took it over, which is a, was a weird pick because he was the guy who did like a lot of these bad seventies Disney live action movies. Like the movie he did before oh, yeah. this, the movie he did before this one was hot lead and cold feet with Don Knotts, which is not a natural <laughs> transition feels more like a Sydney J Fury movie feels more like hit. For example. Yeah. He did the barefoot executive too. Yes, he sure did. And the computer wore tennis <laughs> shoes. So, yeah. um, you know, I think really the, the, if anything, you know, credit for, for the consistency of the movie goes to Victor J Kemper, who was the DP. Cause he shot, you know, dog day afternoon and I, of Laura Mars and Husbands and a lot of these sort of great 70s New York movies. Uh, but basically, James Brolin plays a, a, an ex-cop um, who uh, was was fired uh, sort of as retaliation after uh, ratting out some other cops to the NAP commission. And one of the things I, again, this just sort of goes back to the mission of the book. Like, I love this movie because it folds in like real New York history stuff from that period. Um but he's a trucker now and he's coming to visit his daughter, his, you know, his sort of tween daughter. And she's kidnapped in Central Park, like right after, you know, right when she's on her way to school. Uh, in true New York City fashion, absolutely no one blinks an eye as this child is like <laughs> dragged screaming into a car and roars away. Um, but that's, you know, that's really like the starter pistol. The movie's off and running. It opens with this this incredible New York car chase sort of through central park and out into the streets and then foot. And so it's a, it's a really great chase sequence with a young Mandy Patinkin, uh, really going for it as a cab driver. Um, (laughs) it, you know, like I said, this extended sort of multi vehicle foot chase through several neighborhoods and crashing cars and smashing windows and they're dragging stuntmen and, and the whole movie just sort of, once it starts at that pace, it sort of keeps it. It's, it's a, a really, it's a tight sort of time frame. He's, he's, you know, he's trying to find his daughter and save her. It's sort of packed into about a day. Um, he's just running all over the city. He, you know, he, he, he gets a lead at a, a Times Square peep show. So he's in like one of those old peep show establishments and and that's sort of fun to see um he ends up in the south bronx which is great and again you know you sort of see get a, a feel for some of the history of of that very you know rough neighborhood in that period and dialogue about you know how real estate people are like burn you know hiring local kids to, to burn these buildings down for insurance money and all that sort of thing um it's just it's fast and it's furious and it's got a great supporting cast. Richard Castellano from The Godfather is in there. Uh, like I mentioned, Andy Patinkin. Dan Hedaya is like completely unhinged in this movie. <laughs> like walking down, a, you know, a midtown street, like blasting a shotgun, trying to just mow down Josh uh, or excuse me, James Brolin, because, you know, he was he's one of the cops that that Brolin ratted out. Um, it's it's fast and it's sweaty and it's just a lot of fun. 
it again is one that's that's very hard to see it's it got a vhs release and that was it it's never been out on dvd domestically never been on blu-ray you have to like go to youtube and watch like you know uh, a rip from cinemax um but it's worth it because it's it's just a really terrific little b movie i i i sing the gospel of this movie any chance i get yeah this is like uh taken before taken Mm -hmm. and should have made way more money than yeah. it actually did that, that uh the chase scene is like 10 minutes long like, yeah it is, it's amazing it just goes and, and you think it's gonna end because like a car gets destroyed and he's you know and he's thrown from the, he's like no he's just gonna start running now okay now it's a foot <laughs> chase okay great you know like it's it's and and that sort of relentlessness uh of his character is really what gives the movie its momentum like he's got to get his little girl back you know and and yeah. and who can identify with that so yeah it works it just really works Another great vengeance movie. The last two on my list are also vengeance movies. There you go. Like there you go. What exploitation has to offer. But um, shoot, I guess I'll roll into my first, really my only black exploitation pick on the list from 1973. And this one takes place in Harlem. It is Ozzie Davis's Gordon's War. It's war, baby. It's Gordon's War. The battlefield is Harlem. The enemy is junk. The general is a cat named Gordon. Me! I give the orders. Gordon's War. Rated R. Ooh. Which is oh, just a really, really sharp movie. Have you seen this one before? I I have to confess, you 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 got me. I haven't seen this movie. I I I'm going to now. So tell me all about it. This is starring Paul Winfield, and he mm-hmm. is a black soldier in Vietnam. He comes back to Harlem after a tour and discovers that his wife had become a heroin addict and died of an overdose. And he is infuriated at this. Obviously, he gets a couple of his ex-GI buddies, B. Otis and Roy, and they lay out plans to fight the drug dealers. But the cool thing about this movie is that they don't like go straight to war they use the tactics that they know from the war so they like put some real good thought into how they're going to destroy these drug dealers (laughs) using not only like the guerrilla war tactics but cool gadgets like uh signal jammers and stuff and this is like 73 but they have like infrared and signal jammers it's cool so they're they got four rules they're going to tackle this four ways number one infiltrate enemy territory so they got to get in there and find out who the drug dealers are they cut the supply line, so they they start once they realize who the enemies are, they start cutting off their money and their drugs. Harass the hostiles is number three, and then number four, search and destroy. Nice. And they don't they are cold blooded as fuck in this wow. movie. There's a scene where there's this uh, there's this dealer named Luther, and you know they, they corner him, and he's like, oh. Uh, What's what's the quote makes makes all your troubles melt like bubbles. That's what he says. And they're like, well, let's load this shit up. And they hold him down and shoot him full of his own shit. Oh, wow. It is like the whole time he's just pleading and they do not care. They're just like, roll up your sleeves, Luther. It is really well shot by Davis. Um, It's got there's a scene and it opens with a snip from this scene. But there's a, a later longer scene in it where. Uh, there's a scene shot in a drug house with a bunch of topless women who are bagging the cocaine sure. and they were topless because, you know, they, they don't want people to be 
escaping with any of the drugs. Right. And it's all shot under a black light overhead at first, and it looks just so good. Wow. It's got great shots of old Harlem, both for the neighborhood and the fashion in this is amazing. Yeah. And you mentioned the car chase in uh, Night of the Juggler. Mm-hmm. There's this amazing chase in this movie that is a motorcycle versus a car that looks so damn dangerous. Mm-hmm. The uh, the guy on the motorcycle, obviously no helmet, just screaming through basically like the grassy walkways of these apartment complexes. And right. I mean, they are flying through here. There are people on the streets that are almost getting creamed. Uh, and it ends with like a fantastic freeze frame. There's a great soundtrack. The um, the song, the soundtrack, I think, was Badder Than Evil did most mm-hmm. of the soundtrack. And mm-hmm. Hot Wheels plays in here during that chase. And it is just <laughs> so good. This is a, a brutal take no prisoners revenge film that I think stands with the best of them in the exploitation era. And I, I had to put a exploitation film on here. And obviously, like the first thought is Shaft. But sure. Gosh, it, I, I think Gordon's War is better. Right on. Well, yeah. I mean, when I think of Ozzy in this period, like I, I, I when I, you know, my honorable mentions would certainly include Cotton Comes to Harlem. Uh, but you yeah, know, that one's on mine too. that one's such a sort of gentle, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's some edge to it, but it's, you know, it's a pretty affable movie. And so the idea of him making something that's this sort of uh, uh, merciless is really interesting to me. Speaking of merciless, um, my number two film is my lustig choice uh but i went with uh his 1980 uh gore horror classic maniac you can lock your doors but you can't lock the madman out of your mind maniac no one under 17 admitted directed by lustig but uh co-written co-produced and starring the great joe spinell and really Joe Spinell was one of the most enjoyable threads of researching this book, of just seeing like how, what a constant presence he was in sort of scuzzy New York movies of the 1970s. <laughs> like, cause he'll do a one scene like taxi driver, or he'll do something like this where he is in it all the way through, or he'll do sort of a medium supporting role like Nighthawks. Like he didn't care. He just worked. He worked a lot. But this was, you know, the only movie where he had this much of a hand in uh, what was going on behind the camera. And it is a grisly little item. I'm 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 sure this is not, you know, most I'm sure who are listening uh, have seen Maniac, but it's what I loved about it, watching it for the book. Um, aside from just the fact that it's genuinely scary and Tom Savini's, you know, effects are just so sort of unsettlingly convincing and so forth, but was really the, the sort of transgression of the idea that this is a movie about a guy who's hunting young women on streets, in discos, in parked cars. And again, this was three years after the summer of Sam, like the idea that he was really keying into lingering urban fear like that was a scary time for new yorkers especially for young new yorkers you know that there this idea of a serial killer who was just uh taking people out sort of without remorse without any particular pattern except that you know that you could just it could be anyone 
Um, and especially like when I'm watching, there's a scene where like a young couple leaves a discotheque, you know, to go like park and screw near the Verrazano bridge. Like that's a real son of Sam murder right there. Like really, really disturbing. But the general idea that I found really interesting when watching this one is that so much of sort of the slasher um, motif, if you will, of of this period of the late 70s and early 80s is um, suburban or kind of uh, uh, woodsy. You know what I mean? Like Friday the the 13th, obviously, (laughs) and all of its knockoffs, you know, being sort of cabin in the woods sort of movies and things like that. But then even like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, like these are suburban horror. These are, you know, the, 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 the pretty houses tucked away in say, you know, in the safety of whatever. This is a, a distinctly urban slasher movie. Like that the, 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 the kills in this movie are in, you know, scuzzy motels and apartment buildings. And there's a really terrifying sequence in a subway station, you know, that, oh God. <laughs> that he is really keying in on the fears of the, of the urban victim. And in a really scary time to live in New York when crime was incredibly high and it was not safe, especially for a young woman to be out in the the city after dark um kind of similar ways that um that abel ferrara's fear city uh is kind of playing in that same sandbox that its serial killer is out on streets and in subway stations and things like that but then also like as with basket case which was another of my kind of runners up this is also a movie that seems very at home in the sort of like lobbies and rooms of these seedy little Times square flop houses and in the grind houses where it would ultimately play for you know for several engagements i'm sure mm-hmm. so i think it's a really effective slasher movie but also i think it's it's a, a, probably the best example in this slasher era of a very metropolitan slasher movie and in that way it kind of stands out one of the things that makes it stand out from the typical slasher is that when you watch friday the 13th the main characters are still the the kids and yes. when you watch uh when you watch these, it's about the people being stalked. But in this movie, like he's the person we're following the whole time. Yeah. And Spinell, he, you know, he's kind of affable when he's like his normal self. Yeah. And then he's making these fucking disgusting noises yeah. as this maniac. It's yeah. It's kind of just going, going from charming to absolutely terrifying is tough to do in movies and he really does a good job of it. Absolutely. But, and that, and then also, you know, there's just, we just as viewers have a sort of natural inclination to sympathize slash identify slash empathize with whoever our main character is. Uh, (laughs) And the way that this movie fucks with that inclination, the way that it, uh, you know, that you sort of have to find somewhere else to focus your sympathy because he's so repugnant. Uh, is is it makes for some really fascinating tension on screen. Yeah, you're right. That's another uh, Spinell on our list because he was also in um, Vigilante. Of course he was, he was. In the courtroom scene. Yeah. Of course he is. Great pick. I was wondering when you said Lustig was on your list if it was going to be Maniac or Maniac Cop, and I'm kind of glad it was Maniac. <laughs> I do love Maniac Cop too. <laughs> but it, frankly, Maniac Cop is also a Larry Cohen movie, so then I would have been, you know, doubling up on him. So. Oh, yeah, that's true too. Um, okay, grand finale time. Number one, this one I can honestly say is the most fun one on my list to watch. I have a blast every time I watch this. I brought it up 
geez, early in the show run, I reviewed it when I first saw it, and I've seen it like three times since. It is from Manhattan, 1977's Death Promise. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I love Death Promise so much. Another movie I saw at Weird Wednesday while I was researching (laughs) the book. Saw this projected at the draft house. That's wild. That's a promise. Bet you won't put your trust in me. Bet you won't let me go further than you can see. It's got the best theme song on my list by far. It's got a a song made for the movie, which is just great. Yep. It's about this this, um, apartment complex, and the residents of this building are being harassed, and they're being threatened by realtors. Yes. It's called Iguana Realty. It's like a dummy corporation which owns the land, and they're going to force these people out of their homes so they can build some nice, expensive places and... Uh, this dude, Charlie, lives in these tenements, and he's a karate master, of course, and his dad is murdered by a group of thugs hired by the landlords, so he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. Yep. And uh, it is so fun. He's got his best friend, Speedy, whose uh, real name was also <laughs> Speedy. They just, like, use their own names in this. Of course. Ass-kicking black dude. And they just go out for vengeance and they come up with a plan to murder each board member of Iguana Realty. Yep. In the middle, you get a, a section where, gosh, there's there's uh, shades of Kill Bill in here. He, you've got a <laughs> training montage where he goes to train with a karate master. And he also starts crossing names off a list with a yep. red pen a la The Bride. Like the looks of the insides of these New York apartments are just so sleazy from the apartments to the streets everything just looks like shit the tone of the movie is just such a good time though and part of it comes to the low budget aspect of stuff and the fact that you can tell none of these people had acted before like you could see you look in the background of almost any shot you're going to see an extra looking directly into the camera always yes (laughs) so funny and then there's a specific scene near the end of the movie where a dead guy his corpse is thrown off of a building, but they still added a scream in. So <laughs> like the corpse is screaming somehow on the way down. Yeah. It's got one of the more creative deaths I think I've seen involving a bag full of rats. <laughs> yes. Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, if you watch it now, it still works as an economic commentary. Absolutely. If you're stripping out all the other stuff, you know, it's there's a quote in there. It says the, the goddamn landlords driving in their big fancy cars, living in mansions with their fat ass wives. All our money goes to rent. We're barely making it. They get it all like that's what we're dealing with as a country right now. Yep. with The wealth gap. And I just it still works today. It's a genre blending grindhouse classic. And I think it perfectly embodies the mid 70s. And uh, it's a really cool time capsule in Manhattan. That's a uh, death promise. I had to have it as my number one when I was coming up with my list. Cause it's just so goddamn fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. My number one is, is a much more predictable pick. Um, but I had to get an Abel Ferrara on here. Uh, <laughs> King Abel, God bless him. Uh, they actually, the, the, the museum of modern art did a retrospective for Abel Ferrara. Uh, while I was researching the book. So I got to see like a lot of these movies projected, uh, which was a blast. And also often with him giving his uh, just quintessentially curmudgeonly introductions and Q and A's after. (laughs) Uh, But if I'm going to pick one, 
uh, I'm going to pick the one that's at the top of this list, which is Miss 45 from 1981. Every day, on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused. one of the all-time great uh rape revenge movies uh it's almost a, it's it sort of applies the death wish template um and then sort of crosses it with the scum manifesto um it's about a uh a young woman who works in the uh, in the garment district and um, is a deaf mute and crime in the city in 1981 is so bad that she is uh, brutally raped in an alley on her way home. And then when she gets home, there's a burglar waiting in there to rape her again. That's how bad crime is at this particular moment. So she, uh, so she decides to start taking out the, the start taking out, you know, rapists and muggers and then basically any man who she sees and, you know, hard to blame her. Um, you know, the, and what, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this movie is how it sort of be, it's willing to grapple with the bloodlust element of the vengeance slash revenge movie in a way that most exploitation movies are not, um, or that, you know, they're only doing it sort of subconsciously, but like this really is, she gets to a point where she's just looking for guys to kill because she's so broken. And, uh, and again, consider all things considered hard, hard to blame her. Um, it's got an incredible lead performance by Zoe Lund. She's just like, it's a stunning piece of acting, especially because again, no dialogue, uh, it's all, it's all acted, you know, this is <laughs> the, the passion of Joan of Arc, but you know, as a rape revenge movie. <laughs> um, and then it sort of turns into Carrie at the end with like this killing spree at the Halloween party. But you know, yeah. as with any Abel Ferrara, it's darkly comic. There's all this great stuff about body disposal, um, you know, stuffing body parts into trash bags in freezers, dumping them in trash bags around or in trash cans around the city into lockers at Port Authority. Like, you know, it, it really does get into the difficulty of, of being a mass killer in the city and then having to get rid of all those bodies. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of attention to detail that we look for from an Abel for our movie. Um, he made a lot of great movies. Again, any number could have been on this list. I love the driller killer fear city. I mentioned earlier is just like a terrific piece of work. King of New York, of course. Um, the addiction I think will still hasn't gotten its due as one of the great New York vampire movies, but this one, I still think sort of sits at, at the top of the heap for him. Uh, Miss 45. So many of his movies up to bad Lieutenant G's could have yeah. made this list. Yeah. Listeners, you have a ton of New York movies to watch because we didn't cross over on any of them, which right. I'm actually really excited about. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to real quick before we go over our honorable mentions, I'm going to run down our list real quick. We had uh, Who Killed Teddy Bear at your number five, followed by God Told Me To at number four, Night of the Juggler at number three, Maniac at number two, and Miss 45 was your number one. 
On mine, I had Combat Shock at number five, 1990 The Bronx Warriors at number four, Vigilante at three, Gordon's War at two, and Death Promise at number one. Any of those honorable mentions that you that that neither one of us mentioned that almost made your list? Um, let's see. My honorable mentions included um well, across 110th Street, I feel like it's finally starting to get its due. So, so I, I but mm-hmm. I always try to mention that one. Uh, Alphabet City, the ambulance, I think, is a lot of fun. Uh, Basket Case, which I, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Black Caesar, of course, which you mentioned earlier. Um, let's see. Oh God, what else? I almost put Blue Steel on here. I wasn't sure if it counted as an exploitation movie, but <laughs> I, I do, I do truly love that one. Uh, Chud, of course. Um, you know, is, is, is a killer one (laughs) cruising, I think counts as an exploitation movie. And that one's definitely one that I would mention, uh, death by temptation is I think a terrific, uh, Brooklyn vampire movie. Um, and what, Oh God, I had, I had like one other one that I wanted to, uh, oh, um, um, habit that was sort of along with the addiction in terms of the, uh, the New York vampire movies habit is one that, that I, that really struck me when I was watching it for the, for the book. Oh, habit. I haven't seen. I'll have to put that on my list to, to watch. Yeah. It's I mean, there was that, there was that moment. There were about four, I mentioned this on pure city, pure, um, pure cinema. There were four sort of like low budget indie, mostly black and white vampire movies of kind of the early to mid nineties. It was like habit, Nadja, the addiction and night owl. And they're all sort of at the time they were all read kind of as, uh, AIDS metaphors. Cause that was sort of the height of the AIDS panic. And that's an, in, and, and they all work on that level. I also like to think of them as being about gentrification because that's when Giuliani was cleaning up the city. Uh, <laughs> and they're all movies about how the freaks still come out at night and we'll pick up, you know, a broker at a bar and take them home and devour them anyway. All right. I got to check that out. Uh, the only ones on my list that we didn't mention were, uh, New York Ripper by uh, Fulci. Yeah. yeah. And Tenement, which is from 1985, it's just a killer movie, but it just felt too similar to Death Promise, and Death ah. Promise was more fun. So toss that out. But I had like Cotton Cubs of Harlan, Night of the Juggler, and then I just wrote down anything by Bill Lustig. Yeah, pretty much. Honorable mentions. Pretty um, much. Listeners, if you're like, if you're not ready to go full exploitation, you don't want to like, you just want to dip a toe in, check out stuff like Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, Death Wish, and that'll kind of give you an entry point into some of the movies that we talked about. But if you want a full view of New York and all of its cinema, you got to buy the book and you're going to find the link in the show notes right now. We, aside from your uh, pick from the late 60s, Who Killed Teddy Bear, we only really talked about a couple of films from the 70s and 80s, but your book covers 100 years of New York cinema. So go buy the book. Again, you're going to find the link in the description here. Fun City Cinema, New York and the movies that made it. Go buy it. Uh, Jason Bailey, anything else you want to plug while you got your time? We do also have an accompanying podcast, which is also called Fun City Cinema, which you can grab at any of your your podcatchers. Uh, we did two seasons total of 10 episodes so far, and it basically is, a, you know, it was an opportunity to expand on some of the stuff that we were only able to sort of touch on in the book because you got to cover 100 years in, in only so many pages. Uh, but it's a nonfiction narrative storytelling podcast, kind of like it's cut like an audio documentary where we dig into a, a movie or two or a group of films and connect it again to sort of what's happening in New York at the moment and also what's sort of happening in current, you know, social circles and in politics right now. And we talk to 
filmmakers, film historians, film critics, New York historians, contemporary political commentators, and sort of tie all these movies together to their moment and to also what's happening right now. Uh, we have episodes about Death Wish, about Do the Right Thing. Actually, we have two episodes about Death Wish. Uh, <laughs> Do the Right Thing, 25th Hour. We have an episode called Subway Stories about the Warriors and taking a Pelham 123. Uh, a Times Square episode about Taxi Driver and Midnight Cowboy. I, it, it ended up, we were. it was initially just conceived as, conceived as a crass promotional gimmick. Uh, but it actually turned into its own thing and something that I'm very proud of on its own. So, So give that a listen if you'd like. All right, the Fun City Cinema podcast. Go check that out as well. Look, as this airs, this is December 20th. You got a couple days left before Christmas. This is an excellent addition to get underneath your tree. And if you order it right now, you can get it in time. Jason, is there one place that you want people to go and get this? Or is it like if you get it on Amazon, grab it on Amazon? Or is there a, sub- a specific place you want people to buy it? I mean, if you can find it at your local indie bookstore, of course, that's always the preferred way to go. But if you're of if course. you're if you're grabbing last minute, yeah, get it on Amazon. Use that Prime membership. Get it there in time for Christmas. Again, hit the show notes, buy the book. There's a link in the show notes. And if we missed one of your favorite New York exploitation movies, let us know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to next week's show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. It's the best gift you can give me this year. I mean, unless you want to give me a donation. Hit me up if you want to give me money. But if you don't, write a review. It's free. And tell your friends to listen. If you do it at the Christmas dinner table, bonus points for that. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, all the rest of them. And go watch some New York exploitation movies before you carve that Christmas ham. Force five.